chapter 3, either open it up or turn it on or however you get to Romans chapter 3 these days. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 26. Uh, you can also follow along while the verses on the screen. So we're in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Why don't you follow along with me as I read. The Apostle Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word to us. Lord, you have not left us without an example. Lord, you have not left us alone, but you have given us your own self-revelation of yourself in your word as you show us who you are, what you've done for us. I pray this morning as we look at this most prized passage of scripture, Lord, that you would just grant us the gift of illumination Lord, that we are aware of our need for you. And we ask, Lord, that you would, would meet that need by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would make these verses come alive in our hearts. Lord, that we would leave here more aware and more amazed of who you are, who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, we do ask all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the one who is ruling and reigning with you right now. Amen. Well, this morning we are wrapping up our series looking at the five solas, the five great doctrines recovered by the Reformers. I hope that you've enjoyed this series. I know that, that personally this has just been such an encouraging series for me just to, to leave here week after week being reminded of the wonderful truths that were, that were recovered during the Reformation. And I think that we've saved the best for last. I think that we've saved the best for last is this morning we look at Christ alone. We look at solus Christus. So just diving right in this morning. What, what did the reformers mean when they spoke of Christ alone? I mean, what does that even mean to say Christ alone? Of course, Christ alone. What the very core of this doctrine is the belief that Christ's sacrifice is completely sufficient for our complete salvation. Christ's sacrifice is completely sufficient for our complete salvation. When we affirm Christ alone, what we're saying, what we're saying is that Christ's work, specifically his death on the cross, is completely sufficient for our salvation. From beginning to end, what Christ did is enough. 
There's nothing that we need to do. There's nothing that we can do to add to Christ's work for us. It's through his life, death, and resurrection alone that we are justified. For the Reformers, this doctrine stood at the center of all of the solas. Certainly, they, they're all connected. They're all interconnected to each other. I hope, hope we can see that. But Christ alone stood at the center. Because without Christ alone, they all collapse. Without Christ alone, they all fall. Christ alone was at the center of the solas. It was at the center of their theology. And I hope that we can see this morning that Christ alone shouldn't just be at the center of our theology, but Christ alone should be at the center of our lives. Christ alone should be the flag that we rally around. It should be our true north. It should be our true source of joy. Christ alone is the hope that we hold on to, the hope that we cling to in the midst of trials and difficulties. Christ alone is the ballast that balances our boat when the sea gets rough, when when life gets hard. It's Christ alone that we cling to, Christ alone that we need to go to. This doctrine is the, the very foundation of our identity as Christians. Would you say that that's how this doctrine is functioning for you right now? Is the doctrine of Christ alone what you're looking to is your greatest source of joy? As you walk through trials and difficulties, are you returning again and again to the cross of Christ? That's how this doctrine is meant to function for us. And it's my prayer that as we, as we look at Romans 3, that this, that this truth will just shine brighter for us, that, that Jesus will get bigger for us, that our affections will be moved as we behold Christ and him crucified. I hope that as we're, we're done here, as, as we, we hear God's word being preached, just that we'll be able to say with the, Paul, say with the apostle Paul that we're going to boast in nothing, except in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because it's through Christ alone that we're saved. This morning, we're going to unpack this doctrine, this doctrine of Christ alone in in three movements. We're going to see three things that will help us better understand and apply this doctrine. So let's first consider the dispute. The dispute, as we've seen the last few weeks, the Reformation was really all about the doctrine of justification. It was all seeking to answer that one question that plagued Martin Luther throughout his entire life. How can sinful man be made right? How can sinful man be accepted before God? That was was the question that the reformers were seeking to answer. And unlike today in the 16th century, that there was no, deb- no debate about whether man was sinful or what God's response was to our sinfulness. On this issue, the Catholic Church and the Reformers agreed. Like we read in our passage this morning, they all affirmed that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All without exception, all without distinction, all that's including you and that's including me, we've all sinned. And because of our sin, we've fallen under God's divine wrath. 
So it wasn't that the controversy, the dispute wasn't over what our problem was. We all, we all agreed on the problem. But the dispute arose over the solution. Over the solution to this question, how can sinful man be made right before God? The Roman Catholic Church at the time, and still today, believes that we must cooperate with the work of Christ to be justified. We are going to be saved. It is Christ's work plus our works that will make us justified. Justification is not a declaration, but it's a process. It's something that through God's grace that we become more and more justified as we do more and more good works. Primarily as we, we go to the church and receive the sacraments. So the Catholic Church teaches that when we stand before God, he is, he is not going to judge us based on the work of Christ, but based on whether, whether we have become justified enough. Based on whether we have made ourselves righteous. In their view, it's Christ's work and our work that leads to the actual forgiveness of our sins. In this way, the Roman Catholic Church denies, the death of, that, the, denies that the death of Christ was sufficient to justify us before God, that the death of Christ was not enough to make us right with God. This is what made, made Martin Luther so mad over the selling of indulgences, the belief that you could buy your way out of purgatory. It wasn't simply that the church was taking advantage of those most vulnerable by saying, hey, give me all the money that you have and we will get your loved ones out of purgatory or we can even get you out of purgatory. It wasn't so much the moral issue, but it was that it minimized the death of Christ. It belittled the effects of the cross by teaching that Christ's death didn't save anyone but it simply made people savable. It was up to me and you to do the rest. I want to say that that's in the context of God's grace. It's not like they're just saying, it's after Christ died on the cross, it brings you to a point and then it's all you on the end. They, they acknowledge God's grace in this process. But in doing so, they deny that this death was sufficient to earn our salvation. And by minimizing the effects of Christ's work, they denied the two great truths that we've seen the last two weeks. Because Christ's death can't be by faith alone or by grace alone through faith alone if it's not in Christ alone. Catch that. Our salvation cannot be by grace alone through faith alone if it's not in Christ alone. So instead, it becomes something that you and I must do. We must, we must work to complete what Christ has finished. When faced with this same question, how can sinful man be made right with God? The reformers unanimously declared that sinful man is made right with God on the basis of Christ's sacrifice alone. It's Christ's sacrifice that is completely sufficient for our complete salvation. Because in their view, it's on the cross that Christ bore the penalty for our sin on behalf of all those who will believe. 
This is a teaching that they called the penal substitutionary atonement. The penal substitutionary atonement. Now, I know you might be thinking, well, that's a, that's a $2 word there. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a great dollar, that's a great word. Why, why do we need to talk like that? I, I know it can be tempting when you hear theological jargon like this, or, I mean, really any jargon like this in any, in any sphere. It can be tempted just to tune out. I mean, what in the world can whatever that is have anything to do with my real life? But it's not theology for theology's sake. The reformers weren't just posturing when they, when they came up with this doctrine. Not when they, when they came up with it, but when they, when they wrote about this doctrine. Doctrine matters because it impacts every area of our life. When we see words like that, the penal substitutionary atonement, that should remind us that doctrine matters because doctrine impacts every area of our lives. And the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement matters because it affects the very grounds and the assurance of, of our salvation. So what does this mean? We're breaking it down word for word. First, we see that the word penal highlights that, Christ, that in Christ's death, he bore, he bore a penalty. Just like we have our penal code here in the United States that lists out all of the punishments for all of the different crimes that could possibly be committed. When Christ died on the cross, he bore the penalty for the sins of all those who believe. This was a, Christ bore something when he died. And this brings us to the second word in here. It's substitutionary. As you may have picked up, this is affirming that Christ died as our substitute. He died in the place of all who will believe. If you are here and you're trusting in Christ, Christ died as your substitute. Let that impact you. It's not just a theological word here. And lastly, the word atonement, it refers to Christ's reconciling work or his, his work of restoring the relationship between God and man. It's Christ's work of, of reconciling us to himself, wherein he is achieving our salvation. So when the reformers say, when we say that Christ died a penal substitutionary atonement, what we're saying is that he died as our substitute, bearing the wrath of God for all who believe, earning or accomplishing our salvation. This was the dispute, the time of the Reformation. The dispute was, was when asked, how can sinful man be made right with God? The Catholic Church says that it's through faith in the work of Christ and our participation in that work. And against this, the Reformers cried out, Christ alone. It's Christ's penal substitutionary sacrifice that is completely sufficient for our complete salvation. Let's turn now to the defense of Christ alone. That was the dispute. Now let's turn to their defense because we don't want to believe this just because John Calvin and Martin Luther said it. We want to believe this because it's taught in Scripture. And as the Reformers went to teach this doctrine, they turned most, most foundationally to, the, to our passage this morning. They turned to Romans 3, 21 to 26 to defend this great doctrine. This passage has been referred to many as the greatest paragraph in the entire Bible. And for good reason. 
I mean, some of the greatest and most prized Christian truths are laid out here in Romans 3, 21 through 26. And so while there is a lot that can be said about these verses, we're only going to scratch the surface. Certainly, after we're done this morning, much more could be said about these verses. But as we look at this passage with Christ alone in mind, I want to draw our attention to just three verses. Verses 23 through 25. Let's read these again. The Apostle Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In verse 23, Paul summarizes the point that he's been making throughout the first three chapters of Romans Namely, that every person, Jew and Gentile alike, are under God's wrath. We've all sinned, and we're all under the wrath of God. And we have to keep these two points together. We can't separate our sin from God's wrath. Because it's not just that we're sinners. That in and of itself might not be a big deal. Except for the fact that God hates sin. And in light of his holiness, our sin arouses God's wrath. As sinners left to ourselves, we are under the wrath of God. Paul has laid this out in Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3, and he's brought this to a culmination here. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But as we think about God's wrath, as we think about God's anger, we need to, to keep in mind that it's not anything like our anger. To say that God is angry or that God is wrathful, it doesn't mean that he's likely to just fall off the handle, that he's to fly off the handle at any moment, or that he's, he's, he's tempted to lose his anger just at, at any moment, that the, the slightest sin, he is just going to unload his anger. That's not what we're saying. There's, there's nothing impulsive or arbitrary about the wrath of God. He's not short-tempered. He's not malicious. He's not spiteful. He's not vindictive. His anger is not unpredictable. But it's predictable in that it's always provoked by our sin. God's wrath is his steady and uncompromising hatred toward evil in all of its forms, including our sin. That's our problem. It's not just that we're sinners, but that we're under God's wrath because of our sin. This is good news, huh? <laughs> sure, by now you're probably thinking, man, where's that sermon on Thanksgiving? Where's that sermon on gratitude? <laughs> but, but let me tell you that the good news of the gospel is only good news in light of that bad news. And oh, what wonderful good news we're about to see in this passage. Because Paul doesn't just stop calling us out as sinners. He doesn't just say that we're sinners under God's wrath, but he continues. He says that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here we see that we are made right with God by his grace. Notice that it's, it's God who justifies we are passive. God is the one who is active here, and it's all of grace. Our justification is given as a gift from God. This isn't something that we can achieve. It's not something that we can earn. 
but it's something that God freely gives to us. And this is possible because of what we read next. We read next that, it, that this redemption, that this gift of grace comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Do you see that there in verse 24? This comes as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Notice that word redemption. This is, a, this is a key word in our passage here because it shows us how God can be gracious to us. At its heart, redemption was a, was a marketplace term. So it's a term that means to ransom or, or to buy back at a price. It was commonly used as in the slave market of someone ransoming a slave by, by paying a price to secure their freedom. In the Old Testament, God's great work of redemption was his freeing Egypt from captivity, from slavery in Egypt. So when Paul says here that we are justified through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, what he's saying is that we are justified by God's grace because in his death on the cross, Jesus paid the price to deliver us from sin. When Christ died on the cross, God stamped paid in full on our legal debt. As the saying goes, I think I got this right. It says that that he, that's Christ, paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. That's what redemption means. If you're here and you've trusted in Christ, you're free. Your debt is has been paid. Christ has freed you from your slavery, from your bondage to sin. If you're reading in Galatians 5, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. We are no longer under the bondage of sin because of, what, because of Christ's work on the cross. He completely freed us. Isn't this, isn't this good news? We are freed. We have been redeemed. But it gets better because as Paul continues, he shows us the means that God uses to bring about this redemption. He shows us what the price was that was paid. In verse 25, he continues when, when Paul says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. We are redeemed through Christ. This redemption is in Christ Jesus Because God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. Jesus is able to redeem sinners because on the cross, he died as a propitiation for our sins. It's another $2 word for you. It's not a word you're, you're probably familiar with. It's not a word that I hear or that I use often. But this is one of the most important words in all of Scripture. Not exaggerating here. The word propitiation is one of the most important words in your Bible. Because the word propitiation gets at the the very core of our Christian faith. It gets at the very heart and soul of the gospel itself. Because the word propitiation means to satisfy or to appease anger. To appease someone's wrath. In our passage, Paul shows us that on the cross, Christ satisfied the righteous wrath and anger of God towards our sin. 
Remember what we looked at earlier. Our biggest problem isn't just that we're sinners, but that because we're sinners, we're under God's wrath. If God's going to justify us, any of us, he must deal with our sin. God can't just wink and turn the other way. He can't sweep it under the carpet. Our sin must be dealt with if God is to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. And this is exactly what propitiation means. It means in his death, in his death on the cross, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God for all who, believe, who will believe. As our substitute, God unleashed in a moment a tsunami of wrath upon his son as he bore the penalty for our sin. This just brings to mind those, those great words from the hymn in Christ alone that I think we're going to sing after this sermon. In the second verse, they write, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here, in the death of Christ, I live. In the death of Christ, God's wrath against your sin has been completely satisfied. All of the guilt for all of your sins has been transferred from your shoulders to his shoulders as he bore the penalty that we deserved. Church, there is not one drop of God's wrath left for you because Christ took it himself upon the cross. That's why Paul can say those glorious words in Romans 8.1, where he says that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because Christ paid it all. There is no more condemnation left for you and for me, because Christ bore it all. I'm not sure how many times this verse has just brought so much comfort to my heart. Just plagued by sin, aware of my shortcomings, I'm just so tempted to heap condemnation on myself, to, to think that there's no way God can be pleased with me. But friends, because of what Christ endured on the cross, where he died as our substitute, there is no more condemnation for you or for me. And it's not just that Christ brought us to a neutral place. It's not just as if he, he got rid of God's wrath and, and brought us to a place where God will now, now tolerate us, where he'll, he'll simply put up with us. But because of what Christ did on the cross, God is now propitious towards us. God now looks favorably upon us. God looks at us with the same love and affection that he looks upon his son. Just let that land land on you. Because of what Christ did on the cross, he took our sin, he took our wrath, and we received his righteousness, whereby God now looks at us lovingly, affectionately, propitiously, because of what Christ did. This is the great exchange. It's our sin for Christ's righteousness. Friends, you'll never hear any better news in the rest of your life. Everything else that you will hear is secondary. 
this truth, this wonderful truth of Christ alone is primary. But before we move on, I just want to say that, that this, this is good news only for those who have trusted in Christ. As Paul says at the end of verse 25, that this is to be received by faith. If you're here and you have not turned away from your sins, if you have not trusted in Christ, then you are still under God's wrath. But there's good news because you don't have to be. God has provided the substitute. All you have to do this morning is admit that you have sinned against God and turn to him trusting in his work on the cross for you. You don't have to clean up your life first. You don't have to become a religious person. You don't have to become a moral person. All you have to do is realize your need. Realize that you are a sinner condemned by God, but Jesus Christ died in your place, trusting in his work alone for salvation. So this morning, I want to appeal to you, if you have not done that, turn to Christ, trust in him, trust in his work for you. So this is their defense of Christ alone. Looking at Romans 3, the reformers showed that Christ's death was completely sufficient for our salvation because on the cross, Jesus redeemed us from our sin and he propitiated or he satisfied the wrath of God against our sin. So we've seen the dispute and the defense. And to keep it alliterated, let's now turn to the difference. What difference should Christ alone make in our lives? think that there are, are many, many ways that this doctrine can function for us. I, I hope even now the Spirit is just ministering these truths to your heart. But this morning, I just want to highlight two particular ways that I, I think this truth can function for us, that it can be helpful for us. First, we see that in Christ alone, it grounds our assurance. Christ alone grounds our assurance of salvation. Because we see that from beginning to end, our salvation is all of grace because of Christ. We don't ever have to worry if we've done enough works, if we've merited enough grace to be accepted by God. All that was needed was done by Jesus. We don't need to add anything to it. And on the other side of this, Christ alone grounds our assurance by guarding against the idea that we can somehow earn God's favor by our good works. How easily we slip into thinking that we can earn God's favor by our works. But since God in Christ has done everything needed for our complete salvation, there is nothing that we can add to it. We can't even pay the tip. It's not like God comes in and says, okay, I'll cover the meal if you get the tip. In Christ alone, he has covered the meal. He has covered the tip. There is nothing that we can add to Christ's work. I mean, isn't this freeing? I hope this is a, a freeing truth for you. There's nothing that we can add. There's nothing that we need to add. There's nothing that we are able to add to Christ's work for us. So let me ask you this morning. Do you ever, do you ever find yourself searching for the assurance of salvation? Do you ever wonder, you ever question, how can I know if God accepts me? Have I done all the things I'm supposed to do? Or at least not done the things I know I'm not supposed to do? 
The doctrine of Christ helps us ground our assurance by showing that our assurance of salvation is rooted in Christ. It's not rooted in us. Now, this doesn't mean that we have no regard for how we live. It doesn't mean that we can just do whatever we want because Christ earned our salvation. I think if you were to, to say that to the Apostle Paul, he would think you, he would think you were crazy. I could just see him kind of tilting his head and looking at giving you this funny look as he just says, have you heard anything that I said? Were you even listening to what I wrote? Because the cross doesn't give us license to do whatever we want. The cross calls us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. So the Christ grounds our assurance in knowing that it's all in what Christ did. But Christ alone also grounds our assurance because in it we have the promise of the forgiveness of sins. In 1 John 1, 9, we have probably one of the, the greatest promises in all of Scripture. John writes that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Surely this is one of the, the great promises for you and me, for us, for us who are so tempted to sin. But this wonderful promise is only true because of what John writes a few verses later. In 1 John 2, 2, three verses later, he writes, he writes, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. This means that there is no sin that God will not forgive if you come to him in repentance and faith. Are there sins in your life that you're tempted to doubt God can forgive? You just think that you've just messed up one too many times. There's, there's no way God could possibly forgive you again. If that's you, I just want to encourage you to look to the cross and to be reminded that we can confess our sins all of our sins with the full assurance of the forgiveness because of what Christ did on the cross. He's already bore the penalty for those sins. So what wonderful assurance we have because of Christ's sacrifice. It's an assurance that has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Christ. In light of this, let's boast in the cross. Let's make much of what God has done for us. That's not all, because as we, we see, the second way I think this, this can help us is, is in Christ alone, we see that this truth displays God's love. On the cross, we have the supreme display of God's love for his people. Now, I, know, I know that some of you might be thinking, how can a bloody cross and a wrathful God be a sign of love? Doesn't the wrath of God somehow contradict his love? But I would just say that it's against the backdrop of God's wrath against our sin that his love shines brighter. Because it's on the cross when we realize that in Jesus Christ, God the Son, God offers himself as the sacrifice, paying the price that we cannot pay. We can't separate God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three of them are wrathful against sin. All three of them are angry against sin. And when we look at the cross, we see that God himself in the person of Christ bore the penalty for our sin.
It's the, the, the cross isn't some sign of cosmic child abuse or of an angry God who's out for blood, but it's a sign of God's love for us. He took his own initiative. He took the loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in his own son when he died on our place. And we see this time and time again. When the New Testament wants to display God's love, they go time and time again to the cross. Just hear the words that we read in the call to worship. We read, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Apostle Paul's not the only one. Read, read with me this familiar verse, John three sixteen. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God gave his only son to be the propitiation for our sins as a display of his love. In 1 John 3.16, we read the same. It says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Later in 1 John, we read this. We read, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The sign is God, the cross is God's ultimate display of God's love for us. And it's not some fluffy, sentimental, Hollywood type love. This is a love that cost God. So are you tempted to doubt God's love for you? Perhaps as you're sitting here, your life is, your life is in shambles. Nothing has turned out the way that you thought it would. Perhaps you're alone, financially burdened. Your body suffers from chronic pain. And all this just stirs in your heart that question, does God really love me? What is it for you? What is it that most causes you to question God's love? Perhaps the loss of a loved one the loss of a job, a mean boss, marital conflict, maybe when you're most aware that you're not married, when your kids are driving you crazy, or maybe when you question, why hasn't God given me any children? What is it for you? What is it for you that in the back of your mind causes you to question Does God love me? Because surely if God loved me, none of this would be happening. If God loved me, things would look different. Now, I don't want to minimize any of those things. There are are real struggles that all of us walk through. And in the midst of these struggles, it it is good for us to ask ourselves, to ask God difficult questions. The entire book of Psalms shows us that. It's okay to ask hard questions. But when we're tempted to question, to think if God loves us, we need to look to the cross. We need to know that he loved us so much that he solved our biggest problem. He solved our biggest need in the person of his son. In fact, it's hard to imagine what else God could do to show us that he loves us 
than by sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to bear the penalty that we deserve. This is more loving than God giving you a billion dollars. It's more loving than God giving you a lifetime of health. It's more loving than God giving you that dream job or that promotion that you're wanting. It's more, it's more loving than God giving you that spouse or that children that you've so longed for. Because in the cross of Christ, we get Jesus. It's on the cross that Christ bore the penalty for our sin, that we can be redeemed, that we can be restored to him, that we can have a relationship with Jesus. Because of Christ alone, you don't need to doubt God's love for you. You can know this by turning your heart away from yourself to the concrete, the historical, the tangible reality of Jesus Christ on the cross for you. Shedding his blood for you and setting you free from death and condemnation. That's why we proclaim Christ alone. Because it's in Christ alone that God's love for each of us is displayed. We never want to move past this truth. We want this, this truth to function for us. So this morning, just ask yourself, where do you need to be reminded of God's love for you? And look to the cross. This morning as we close, we're going to respond in the most appropriate way by giving thanks as we take the Lord's Supper. This sacrament, this practice is a gift from God to help, us, to, help, to help keep us constantly amazed of what Christ has done for us, of why Christ has come.